Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The government has been forced to abandon plans for a partial reopening of schools for children with additional needs this Thursday. The Minister of State at the Department of Higher Education, Niall Collins, is with us in studio. But deal done with GPs and pharmacies to roll out the vaccine. But how are we doing compared to other countries as Level 5 looks set to be extended beyond January 31st deadline? And sadly, a record 93 deaths from COVID-19 have been reported this evening. Margaret Ann Harris from the World Health Organization joins us in a few moments. Also, Donald Trump's last day in the office. We'll be looking ahead to the historic inauguration tomorrow as Joe Biden quotes James Joyce in an emotional farewell to his home state this evening. Dublin will be written on my heart. Well, excuse the emotion, but when I die, Delaware be written on my heart. Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. Our first guest this evening is the Minister of State at the Department of Higher Education, Niall Collins. It's not your department which has had to negotiate with the unions and talk to parents about bringing the special needs classes back from this Thursday. But how much of a blow is it to the government, having made this such a major initiative, that it now won't be happening because you failed to get agreement on it? Yeah, well, we're in very challenging times um, and certainly I think if, if you've been tracking this issue as everybody has been over the last uh, number of weeks and days, you, you'll be hearing both sides of the argument in relation to it. The government has to rely on the public health advice and the public health advice consistently being given to government is that schools are a safe environment. And we've heard from uh, the parents of children in special education who have detailed at length how children have regressed, uh, how children... Um, really need uh, to get back into into special education uh, for all the obvious reasons. There's been an unprecedented level of engagement between uh, Minister Foley and Minister Josepha Madigan and the department and all the stakeholders. So, you know, it's very regrettable. It really is. And it is, and it's very regrettable for the parents of the children and also there are many teachers who were going out of their way to say that they wanted to go back and yet it cannot be agreed. We will deal with it later again in the programme, but if that can't be agreed, what are the chances that you'll be able to get the schools back now on the 1st of February as well? It's, it's the stated aim and objective of the government to get our schools back on the 1st of well, February. I know it is, but what are the chances of it? Well, look, we have to, we have to wait and see, Matt. Uh, look, the numbers are going in the right direction. The figures are trending in the right direction. Uh, we're watching it every evening on the news. But why so, can't you then convince the unions of that? Well, th that's, I think, the question which is on everybody's lips. I read the uh, joint statement was, which was issued tonight by 
uh, force and the INTO. It's not clear to me from reading uh, what the issues were. They, they had unprecedented access to the Deputy Chief Medical Officer uh, over the last number of days to answer in detail all the questions and all the queries. Um, I'm told that they were addressed in full, but it doesn't seem to have satisfied the, the union. So we, we will need to hear um, in more detail from the unions as to what exactly were the issues uh, that didn't measure up to, to, to allow them to proceed. But um, I think a, a lot of parents in particular will be disappointed with this. But not, a, not an easy okay. issue, a very, very challenging issue for government to deal with. And it is one we will be returning to later in the programme. But we're joined now by Margaret Ann Harris, member of the World Health Organisation Coronavirus Response Team. Good evening, Matt. And this really just shows you how tough this virus is. It's very contagious and it, it really can explode because it, it spreads in clusters and if you've got situations where people are gathering together spending time together and of course we've seen this over the holiday period over the christmas period when people despite warnings couldn't help themselves and we've seen these explosions these large spikes in many many countries but you've you've put in the tough restrictions and people, it seems, looking at your numbers, are complying. So now is the moment that they have to keep on doing it. Make the most of what you're achieving. Also really plan for when you do come out of restrictions that you can get value for what you've put in so that you can have a way of starting to move but safely and really ensure that you don't have those gatherings, you don't give this virus an opportunity to start spreading so rapidly again. There's also a realisation, I think, Margaret Ann, that it's going to take a long time to dole out the vaccine to get sufficient immunity in the community. How well do you reckon are we doing by comparison with the objection or the objective to get to 70% by the summer across Europe? The critical thing really is to be focusing on the highest risk groups. What we as WHO want to see actually is the highest risk groups being vaccinated around the world. So rather than looking at 70% in your population, look at whether it's, first of all, you're getting all your health and social care workers, all the people who are out there being exposed every day and the people fighting the good fight to keep the rest of us healthy and alive. Uh, secondly, the people who are most likely to get sick. So that's the oldest people in your community and the people with underlying disease. Now, once you've dealt with those groups, you're a long way along to at least taking the pressure off the, off the system. And then you can move into the other groups. But we also ask that that enough vaccine be provided for the rest of the world. This is critical that this happens in every country around the same time. So don't focus on those 70% numbers, focus on getting those target groups vaccinated and also helping the rest of the world vaccinate. And I'll get to the rest of the world in a moment, but how do we deal with situations where you might have queue jumpers, where the powerful and the influential and those in the know try and get the vaccine ahead of others who are perhaps more in need of it? So certainly, again, I would say really focus on getting it to those who are in need of it and ask those who who think they want to get it, why? You know, why are they doing that? Think about why we're vaccinating. We're vaccinating to get the pressure off the system, to get the people most likely to get ill vaccinated. Now, we know this vaccine is good at preventing severe disease, 
we don't even know that it necessarily prevents transmission. So those who might think, I've got to get the vaccine, may not even be doing something that's all that sensible. It may not be achieving what they think they want it to achieve. And finally and briefly, tell us about the WHO concern that rich countries might almost take too much of the vaccine for themselves and leave poorer countries to have small uptake. Yes, indeed. And this is really national queue jumpers. This is this is whole countries who say we want to vaccinate our whole population. This makes no sense. Actually, it makes no sense economically as well as in public health terms, because until we've brought down the numbers of severe infections around the world, until we're really vaccinating properly around the world, nobody's safe. You know, that we will continue to have more and more transmission. Also, even if you've vaccinated your entire population, you haven't necessarily created the level of immunity that's going to protect you from vaccine coming in from somewhere else. So let's do it properly. Let's all do it together. Don't take up all the vaccine. Ensure that it is available and can be rolled out in a sensible and orderly fashion. Margaret Ann Harris from the WHO, thank you very much for joining us here on The Tonight Show. Now, Collins, I think what's widely regarded now as a premature relaxing of the restrictions in December has brought us from a place from one of the best performing countries in the EU to one of the worst in the world, with 93 deaths reported today. So the Cabinet is meeting next Tuesday. Do you expect now that it's becoming almost automatic that these level five restrictions are going to have to be extended at least well into February? Yes, I think so. And uh, look, I mean, I won't be I won't be party to the the cabinet discussions. The, the cabinet subcommittee will meet obviously beforehand and and take on board the advice of NEFIT. But I, I think it's probably reasonable to predict that we will stay at level five for the for the foreseeable future, possibly uh, well into the middle to the end of February. Um, and again, it will depend on the the trending in terms of the numbers and the, the, the stats and also the rollout of the vaccination plan, that will have a huge bearing on it also. But I think it's important to, to stress to people that there is a very detailed vaccination plan. It is rolling out. The building blocks are being put in place. The over 15 million uh, vaccines have been procured as part of our uh, EU membership uh, pre-orders, pre, uh, pre uh, bulk, de bulk deliveries. When all, of, when all of the systems and all of the supply chains gets ramped up, the fact that the GPs and the pharmacists were um, uh, tied into the agreement today is a major, major, major step forward. And I think people will take a lot of, uh, lot of hope and heart from that. Well, we're joined now from Limerick by Dr Catherine Motherway, past president of the Intensive Care Society, head of the ICU at the University Hospital in Limerick, where I believe you're busier than you've ever been. What is it like to be an intensive care doctor at present? I have to say it's rather difficult. Um, there's huge anxiety about the pressure that we're under. There's difficulty in staffing areas across the hospital system and also in ICU because of staff illness and staff absences, um, because there's such high viral transmission in the community. So it has created huge pressures within the system. We have expanded into surge capacity across the country and locally as well. So as of this evening, there's 209 people nationally in ICU with COVID and well over 300 patients in intensive care nationally. And as we said, 93 people have died. Do you think has that now finally put a scare into people that now they are going to 
behave themselves in such a way as to be more careful as not to spread the illness? I think what it has done is demonstrated to us all that we, the public health guidance is our only hope at the moment while we wait vaccination. We just have to stay at home, keep away from other people, wash our hands and do all of those things. Those things still work. And I can't emphasize enough how much healthcare workers need people to stay at home. We don't need to see them in intensive care. It's, it's just a very difficult place to be. It's, it's, it's really difficult for people to come into hospital. They're scared, they're breathless. And it can, if at all possible, if you can prevent yourself getting this disease, that's the way to go until you get vaccinated. But are you hopeful in, in that we do seem to have a falling number of new confirmed cases, which hopefully will mean that the pressure will lessen on the hospitals and ICUs? Or is there still a significant fear of what they're calling a fourth wave as a result of a variant of COVID becoming more prevalent? I think if we continue with our public health measures such as they are, and if we continue to obey public health guidance, and as your speaker from the WHO said, be really careful about that as restrictions are raised, we should hopefully avoid that. But only if everybody takes these things to heart. Um, we will continue to have pressure in the hospital system despite the falling numbers because as you remember, as the numbers rise, the hospitals don't get the admissions until later. But then we end up keeping those patients for a long time. So we will have pressure in the system for a significant number of weeks. And one final one to you, Catherine. How encouraged are you by the news that a deal has been struck for the GPs and pharmacists to administer the vaccine that they'll be paid 60 euro a shot? I'm encouraged that the GPs and the pharmacists will be vaccinating in uh, the, the nation as vaccines come online. And hopefully that the vaccines will um, do what they're required to do and that we vaccinate the whole world. Um, I think it's very important that vaccines are distributed around the world because nobody is safe from this disease until the whole world is safe. Dr. Catherine Motherwell, thank you for joining us. And we are joined now by Dr. Anthony O'Connor, consultant gastroenterologist at Tala Hospital, also currently a candidate for the chair of the Labour Party. What about your experiences in Tala Hospital? Are things easing in any way? Well, today was the first day nationally where we had significantly more people discharged than were admitted to hospital with this disease. But still, it's putting an enormous strain on our service. We've well over 100 people in hospital at the moment, in our hospital with COVID-19, which is almost about a quarter of our bed base. Um, in addition to this, there's a whole go of other work that has to, has, has to keep on going in, in, in the hospitals at the moment as well. And really, the difficulties are, are, are profound. Um, I, I'm head of my department, and every time I, I, I hear my phone go ping, I, I'm, I'm dreading it because it's, it's somebody who's got to go off sick or somebody who's tested positive or somebody who's a close contact or uh, a patient of mine out in the community who, who we can't reach, who we can't get in for blood tests and investigations, who, who might be struggling or somebody, you know, a vulnerable patient of ours who's picked it up. So it, it, it's a source of enormous strain on, on our service. You mentioned staff. Rich. How many staff have you lost to this stage out at Tala Hospital and how are you managing to provide cover? 
Well, I, I don't know what the figures are for the, the hospital in total, but just to give you an example, there's five doctors on my team, and the Wednesday before, the Wednesday between Christmas and New Year's, we lost four out of the five people over the course of an afternoon. Um, uh, two tested positive, one was a close contact, and another uh, had to come off my rotor to go on nights to cover somebody else who tested positive. So that gives you an idea of how quickly the picture can change, and you just can't keep up with that. Um, the, I, the die is cast really for the next couple of weeks for how this is going to affect the hospital service. But as Dr. Motherway was saying, what we really have to hope is that people will cling to the um, public health messages and, 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 and pay heed and, and really take this disease seriously. So, as, you know, there is a feeling that maybe we might be at the, at, at the full of the tide at the moment, even though I think the intensive care situation will probably get, continue to get worse for a week or two after the hospital situation stabilises. But we really, really need people's help with that. And we also need to end up not back in this situation in a fourth way. At least, are you at all at least vaccinated at this stage that it gives you a certain degree of confidence in going about your work with the PA, the personal protective equipment and the vaccination? Yeah, I mean, I, I would have no complaints about the, the rollout of the vaccine in our place. It's been good. Um, it's been very clear. People have worked very hard. And, and, you know, people talk a lot about hospital managers and things like that. But our CEO was literally in every night making sure that the whole thing ran smoothly. And, and we managed to vaccinate the students as well. Um, so, so, so that's been very good. And, yeah, it is, it is the big light at the end of the tunnel this time. But just bear in mind about vaccines. Like, Israel is way out in front in terms of, 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 of vaccines, as everybody knows. And they released some data today showing that they still really haven't seen much of a change in, in how COVID is affecting their, their, their health service and their hospitals and their rates of transmission. So it's going to take a while, regardless of vaccination. We're going to have to live with this virus for, 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 for a good number of weeks at least to come. Um, so that, that's a cautionary tale. The, the vaccines are not, you know, at, at the moment, an alternative to obeying the public, public health advice. We've got to do both right now. And hopefully in the fullness of time, the vaccines will really kick in. And given what you've seen of the vaccines when given out of the hospital, would you be confident about this aspiration that 70% of the state will be vaccinated by the time we get to the summer? I think this is a huge challenge and something like this has never been attempted before. And to be doing it at a time of pandemic where movements of people are restricted, where you know, health staff are exhausted. But look, what I can see is that so far it seems to be going all right. We seem to be picking up the pace all the time. It's good that the government have made a deal with the GPs and, and, and the pharmacists about giving the vaccine. And it's good as well that if you look at, I think there was a poll in one of the newspapers yesterday that suggested something like 85, 90% of people are willing to take a vaccine. And, 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 and that's great. Um, and, 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 you know, I, 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 I would be optimistic that we'll get vaccination right. I do hope we do. Um, but, you know, that there's, even if, look, if everybody woke up in the morning and there was a vaccine in everybody's letterbox, we'd still have more than enough to keep us occupied for the next couple of months with keeping this disease under control. So let's, let's get the vaccines done, but let's get everything else done too. Now, Collins, would you accept that of all the challenges facing the government, and there are many at present, that the most important may actually be the effective and efficient distribution and administration of this vaccine? Absolutely. I, I think it's going to be the biggest single challenge this government will face during this term. And I think the government is up to the challenge. The, the vaccination plan is very, very detailed. Um, it's set out uh, professionally. 
uh, all the different cohorts and the order of vaccinations has all been decided by professionals, the National Immunisation Advisory Council. It's not been decided by politicians. It's not been decided in television studios or chat shows. There is a, a strict criteria, and I know we've had uh, a number of teething issues this week, which were which were regrettable and shouldn't have happened. But I think the message which uh, I want to give the viewers out there is that the government is putting every resource and every effort and having the GPs on board who can administer 1.5 million vaccines in a six-month period is a, a huge step forward today. We leave it there for now. Thank you to Dr Anthony O'Connor for joining us. Minister of State Nell Collins will be staying with us. And after the break, the government has been forced to abandon plans to reopen schools for children with additional needs this Thursday. We'll have reaction. We'll also be heading live to Washington for Donald Trump's last day in the office. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome back. Well, Minister of State Niall Collins is still with us. And we've also been joined by Sinn Féin's Matt Carty. And via Skype by Eleanor McSherry, co-founder of the Special Needs Parents Association. Eleanor, as a parent and an advocate for children with additional needs, what do you make of this news tonight that the government is now abandoning its plans to reopening those schools this Thursday? It's very disappointing, Matt, but to be honest with you, I'm not surprised at all. Why not? Well, we've had this game, haven't we, for the last couple of weeks. We've been all on this roller coaster, so none of us knew whether this was going to come off or not. And who do you blame for that? I mean, we've had nine months. Uh, we've had different ministers in and out. Um, so I blame all of them, to be honest with you. And what about the role of the unions? Because it has been suggested that there are many teachers who very much wanting to help the children that they teach on a week-to-week -week basis wanted to be back because they fully understand and appreciate the significance and importance of the work that they do? Well, we have parents who are teachers. We have parents who are SNAs. So they're a part of our community just as much as any other parent. So I'm sure an awful lot of them are disappointed. Some of them are relieved. You know, but I, I don't think pointing the finger in their direction is going to help our relationship going forward. So what is the solution as you see it, Eleanor? Because presumably the objective is, is to get these classrooms open and the children in as quickly as possible. Get everyone vaccinated. That's it. 
move quickly, get everyone vaccinated so we can all go back to normal. This whole situation, messing around, not having the information, lack of communication. And I'm not just saying it's the government. I'm also saying the opposition have a part to play in this. Misinformation, stirring things up. At the end of the day, our children are stuck in the middle. Our parents are stuck in the middle. Our teachers are stuck in the middle. And the SNAs are stuck in the middle. And nobody wanted to make a decision. But how quickly do you believe everybody could be vaccinated, given that there is already a set of criteria and a list by which people have to be vaccinated and it is going to take time? Well, I don't know, to be honest with you. Um, you know, that's outside of my area of expertise. But at the sooner we get this done, the quicker we can open back up to some level of normality. But this torturous game that has been playing out in the media for the last three weeks, for the last couple of months, has to stop. Our children are vulnerable. Our families are vulnerable. <clears throat> Our community is vulnerable, and we need to be respected. Matt Carty, <coughs> what's the solution to this? Well, as the old saying went, I wouldn't start here. This is an absolute fiasco, um, I have to say, and it's another fiasco in a long line of um, absolutely um, chaotic moves on the part of this government. The, you know, the difference with this is that the people who suffer as a result of what's been announced tonight are the most vulnerable, our most special children in our communities. Um, they were um, given a false expectation, a false hope yet again. I would hate to be one of those parents that has to sit down with a child that was excited about going back to their special school on Thursday to tell them that that now isn't going to happen. And the root cause of this goes back to the government, but particularly the Minister for Education, just dogged refusal to accept that there might be a need to pursue an alternative course of action. So right up until the end of the Christmas break, um, there was a refusal to accept that there might be circumstances in which schools couldn't reopen. And because of that, there was no contingency plans put in place. And then since then, we have been led by a desire to make announcements and to release press statements, as opposed to, and to engaging with teachers, with parents, with SNAs. That should have happened a long time ago, but it absolutely should have happened. I don't know. I cannot understand for the life of me how in the space of two weeks, we have had now two different announcements given those special children and their families false hope that there is going to be a now, reopening Collins, of the schools. Why was there an announcement made that these schools would reopen on Thursday before the department had actually managed to establish a workable way of doing it? Well, that was the intention of the minister and the government and the department to open our, our special schools. Um, Sorry, we know it was the intention, but the question I asked you was, why was it announced when it actually hadn't been agreed with the partners and there wasn't a workable solution in place? Well, you see, Matt, the facts are that the minister engages regularly, uh, and this is the narrative which the opposition tried to peddle uh, week in, week out, day in, day out, on every media opportunity. The, the minister engages on a daily basis, the department engages on a daily basis at official level, at ministerial level, with the stakeholders and with all the various stakeholders groups. That is a fact. The Minister has said that herself on many, many occasions. And it is a very challenging situation. Um, we have 4% of our school-going community uh, are, are, are special 
uh, needs education students. And I think it's very regrettable that we didn't get to a scenario where we could return on Thursday. We, we hear the frustration from uh, the likes of Eleanor and others as, as a public representative. I, I've been hearing it from SNAs. I hear their concerns and I hear the concerns of the parents but who are advocating for the vaccination their... programme sorted out. Look, everything can be considered and that, that question has been asked and, and it's, a, it's a legitimate question to be asked. Many people are lobbying to have the, 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 the COVID plan changed in terms of the order of the cohorts of people who are being vaccinated. And as I said to you, it's the National uh, Immunisation uh, Committee, Vaccine Immunisation Committee, who will decide. They are the professionals who will decide. It won't be decided by politicians. It has to be decided by the people who oh, are the okay. public health officials. Let me go back to Eleanor and that. So you've heard a politician from government, one from opposition. What do you make of what they've had to say? Well, it's the same stuff, isn't it? Over and over and over again. And look, at the end of the day, sort the problem. Um, we can all have nice sound bites and pictures in the paper. And I love on World Autism Awareness Day, we get a load of politicians coming out and taking pictures with our children. But when it really came down to the wire, where were they when we needed them? Are we the only country, Eleanor, in Europe where the special schools have not returned? No, there are some have gone back and some haven't gone back. It is very much depends on the system that they have in place. Um, but in the in the English speaking world, yes, we are. Okay, thank you, Eleanor. Let's move this on a little bit more because something else that your party leader brought up today, Mary Lou Macdonald, was the suggestion that the government has cut the budget for personal protective equipment in schools by 40%. 40%. Tell us more about that. Well, that's it's just a, a crazy situation. And it goes back, and Niall might say that the minister um, is, is engaging. And he might accuse opposition politicians of saying that she's not. The reason I'm relaying that she's not is because that's what teachers are telling me. That's what school managements are telling me. That's what the people who are at the coalface, SNAs, are telling me. That their representatives weren't part of a discussion. What has happened consistently is look, that look, Norma Foley and her department have this, told this, teachers, parents and students that this is what's going to happen. Even when everybody else that's in the circle of reality when it comes to operating of schools and particularly of special um, schools said that there needs to be some contingencies put in place and there's been a dogged refusal for that Sorry, engagement. Just tell so, me more about so, this 40% cut in personal protective equipment. Yeah, so apparently at the beginning of January, the government made a decision to cut the budget for personal well, Collins, protective equipment by 40%. Well, well, can I tell you, in the middle of last year, €375 million Euros was made available to, to provide PPE for our schools. It was significantly uh, front-load investment to ramp up the, the availability of PPE for our schools. So I don't know where Mary Lou has plucked this figure out of. And for, for Matt to come in, you know, the, like we're getting rid of Donald Trump in the next couple of days, but just to come in and start making up stuff inside in television studios that, that uh, Minister Foley and the government aren't consulting with stakeholders just simply is not true. No, and Matt, you can come in, you can come in here. No, the Matt, sorry, let, let me make an you, You've had your say, Matt. Just, an just, this just, week. Would you just please let me just please let me respond? You're actually, you you have come in here and, and you you were you were. One second, both of you. Wasn't there a special webinar yesterday? There was a webinar in which all the various 16, parties spent hours discussing. Sixteen and a half thousand. Uh, teachers and SNAs were on the webinar yesterday uh, with the uh, Deputy Chief Medical Officer uh, and, and a number of other senior public health officials. So for Matt to come in and just, you know, spin it and misrepresent it and say that uh, the minister hasn't been engaging is just patently not true. And Matt, you can't just come in here and, and, and give that impression because it's factually not true. At least just stick to the facts and we can debate around the facts. Okay. This week, 
Not any, this week, the government announced, the minister announced that schools were going to open on Thursday. They're not, Niall. Did you see the news this evening? The reason they're, they're not. not is because the minister failed to bring on board all of the stakeholders that need to be brought on board. Now, why did that not happen? It's because the engagement didn't happen. The consultation didn't happen. That's it is not, not the same That's... thing for me to host a webinar telling people no. what my intentions are than to actually engage with them in order well, to find let, out what we, is necessary, we, what needs we, to be done in order for it to happen. Because the victims in this, this isn't about politics. Because well, Sinn well, Féin's position... No, it's if not. You, because Sinn Féin's, Sinn Féin's position has been... The we want the special schools to be open. And, and it that is, is the, what we it want is the to government's see position and it's the government's but what stated we want position. To do and for to the, make for sure the government, that the measures are put in place yeah, that will allow I, that I, to happen. I think, Matt, by any level, by any level uh, the reasonable viewers out there know that the government has engaged extensively over the last two to three weeks. So with, why aren't with, the schools with open all, on Thursday? The well, the trade unions need to explain that to us. Forza and the INTO need to explain to us why exactly they so arrived the at this decision. the politics of division. When, when Rather I, than consult, when, when what I, you're looking for no, is a No, you're wrong again. You're wrong again and you're not, you're, you're, you're not prepared to listen to the facts. And the facts are there has been unprecedented engagement. 16,500 people with full access to the Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Ronan Glynn, who was the Acting Chief Medical Officer for so long. He addressed all of their concerns. Uh, all of the issues that they put to him were dealt with in detail by uh, Dr okay. Abigail Collins and, and, and by I Kevin Keller. So, Matt, you just can't spin it. We still have the primary and secondary schools out. There have been suggestions they will go back on the 1st of February, but over the weekend, speculation that it will now be delayed till the 22nd of February, although the Leaving Cert students might go back in early February, just like they were supposed to maybe We've go heard back this in how many times? This what is the, should happen? This, at the start... The government need to put aside their arrogance and their incompetence and their absolute just mm. magnetic um, measures they have for the chaos. There back. needs to be full engagement. So whatever Niall needs is it. That means we need to talk to the stakeholders because Niall is talking about 16,500 people that's tuning that's into a webinar yesterday yeah. and saying that all their questions yeah. were answered. If all their questions were answered, the special education um, schools would be opening on Thursday and they're not. So the questions Can haven't been answered. Well, I mean, if all Matt can say is that uh, engagement isn't happening, I don't know what planet Matt has been living on for the last number of weeks because we have what? said ad nauseum the government has You've been, it, has been, been engaging happening. extensively. That is, that is it's a fact, Matt. True. You should, de you should, de you should no deal with facts, there has not been no fiction. Contingency. Your, 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 your opposition of populism and fiction and is chaos. just coming out. And the people who've suffered are our special needs children, and that's really Thank disappointing. Thank you very much, Niall Collins and Mark Carty, for joining us. After the break, Donald Trump bids farewell to the Oval Office tomorrow. Now, as I prepare to hand power over to a new administration at noon on Wednesday, I want you to know that the movement we started is only just beginning. There's never been anything like it. The belief that a nation must serve its citizens will not dwindle, but instead only grow stronger by the day. Maybe he isn't going away, you know. We'll be hearing live from Washington, D.C. right after this. Welcome back, and we're joined now live from the National Mall in Washington, D.C., by CNN's Emily Schmidt, and here in studio by former CNN White House reporter, columnist with the Sunday Independent, Gina London. Emily, if I can start with you, what is the atmosphere like in Washington tonight, given that you have such an enormous and significant security presence in the capital? 
behind that, I've covered a lot of inaugurations in Washington, and it's truly incomparable to anything you've seen before. Inaugurations are amazing because of the history, because of the fact that they say at 12 o'clock there's this transition of power when one person becomes a, goes from being a citizen to president, and simultaneously a person goes from being president to being a citizen. Instead, what we're seeing because of the security is something so entirely different. We just saw that even though the, the format formality will be the same, the way it's taking place is so very different. We just saw President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris and their spouses just down the mall from me at the Lincoln Memorial. They were speaking, honoring nurses, healthcare workers, all of those who have been part of fighting COVID-19. This happening on a day when 400,000 people, according to Johns Hopkins University, have now died of COVID-19 in the United States. So you've got not only the security issues that have this incredible perimeter with no you know, real people being around, no one to help mark this inauguration as just a regular citizen. You also have the somberness of the point that we are reaching in COVID-19. It really is unlike anything we've seen before in Washington. Of course, all of those deaths from COVID-19 very rarely addressed by the outgoing president, Donald Trump. How has he been getting on today? What has he been doing? Any sign of those expected pardons that we've heard so much about? We are still waiting to hear about pardons. We've heard that there could be around 100, um, that they could be some names that we recognize and also potentially some names that we don't. We are not receiving any indication that the president would pardon himself or members of his family, though all of this still up in the air as we have not seen anything official coming out of the White House at this point. We did, though, within the past couple of hours, see a recorded video that President Trump made about 19 minutes where he said that he wished the best for the new administration, that he wished wished them luck. Uh, President Trump touted what he saw as his successes, a lot on the economy, a lot on Operation Warp Speed, but uh, that was a recorded message. We do not know if we will actually hear from him again live as President of the United States. And is there much kickback against the bad manners that he has shown by not attending tomorrow's inauguration? I think possibly the first defeated president in over a century not been present for the handover of power. It's, it's remarkable, the fact that it's going to be about 152 years since we have seen something like this before. So there is this incredible disruption in what has always been seen as one of the, the strengths of democracy in the United States when you would have one person handing off the power of the presidency to the other. Instead, what we see is, of course, President Trump saying he's going to joint base Andrews to leave Washington as president. We were told he did not want to leave as a former president. But what's also interesting is what you see aligning as a result of this. If you take a look at Vice President Pence's schedule, it doesn't appear likely that he could be at Joint Base Andrews for the Trump send-off and get back to Capitol Hill, where he's expected to be part of the Biden inauguration. And so what you see is that he's going to be, as planned, on Capitol Hill. That's a remarkable thing. When the president-elect Biden goes to the church, where often presidents go to worship and pray before they actually go to their inauguration, he is set to be joined by the four leaders of Congress, two Republicans, two Democrats. This is a sign of unity that we see developing that will be an interesting storyline to play out tomorrow. Tomorrow we're going to see people lining up for unity, probably less mention of President Trump.
Well, one final thing to you, Emily. We've heard you say that Donald Trump has talked up what he perceives to be his own achievements, ignoring his failures. A deeply divisive character. What is the consensus, or is there any consensus emerging as to what his legacy will be? I think it's uh, the legacy is going to be completely rewritten as to what happened at the Capitol that you see behind me two weeks ago. That seems to be the thing that has really shaken uh, people's beliefs in him. We saw his uh, support rating plummet to uh, the lowest that any has been in a CNN uh, survey ever of a president, down to 34 percent. That was happening after the in insurrection at the Capitol. And it really does seem that a number of people who had supported President Trump, members of the public, also members of Congress, to whom they had always kind of turned a blind eye if there had been behavior that they might have found uh, personally unappealing, but politically they wouldn't take a stand on. This is where they have taken a stand. And so what will his legacy be? Of course, we have to still wait to see what happens. But when you see that his favorability rating dropped so much because of what happened here in Washington two weeks ago, it does show that perhaps the legacy that he was hoping to have once he went to Florida, once he went to Mar-a-Lago and was out of Washington, once he continued that outsider status that he talked about in his speech today that he was so proud of, he may have less of a platform upon which to do so than he would have a few weeks ago. Emily Schmidt of CNN, thank you very much for joining us here on The Tonight Show. Gina London, I'm sure there's lots of people who'll be saying to and soon to be former President Donald Trump, don't let the door hit you on the way out. But from what we saw before the break, that pre-recorded speech he gave, is there a sense that he's maybe so addicted to the limelight that this is not a man who'll go into retirement quietly, that he could still be a disruptive presence in American politics for some time to come? Yes, is the short answer. I mean, I think as you looked at Emily and you looked at the flags behind her that were the the substitute for all the people that would normally be there, that field of flags that demonstrates the people. And she talked about how there's supposed to be unity and that we're going to be reckoning. There's going to be hopefully restoration. But as President Trump said in that recorded speech, Matt, that the movement goes on. The populist president that he was and those 74 million people that voted for him, not all of them insurrectionists, but many of them MAGA hat wearing diehards. Certainly some of them were the ones that were QAnon followers and going through into the, what we saw in the Capitol on January 6th. That parallel presidency, I predict, will continue, even though it'll be interesting to see, will there be criminal prosecution? Will there be continued corporate bailouts of those who once supported him and had him in alignment? I think if the money hits him strong enough, you won't see him be quite so blustery. Will he get the oxygen of publicity that he so badly craves, given that he is being thrown off various social media platforms? Will he be able to compensate for that on certain television channels or will he find himself talking to a dwindling audience? Well, that remains to be seen, but there's a lot of other social platforms that can be that can be brought up. Parlor appears is coming up in a different form right now. And so that facilitated that, out of Russia. It, well, there we go. And that there's no surprise there in some respects in terms of his relationship with with the, the President Putin. And when you think about what he represents and his legacy already, take away the 14 60 days, not that anyone's counting that he spent in office or 1,460 days. But when you think about his PR 
legacy at the beginning. He knows he's a master of this messaging. He, as someone who works with communications and leaders and how do you do this and keep that ongoing, he's very good at that. I do believe that he's got lots of people. And the question will be, though, not only will his real loyal base probably stay with him, but will the Republicans? I thought it was interesting in the as the Senate came back to begin some of the confirmation hearings for Biden's cabinet today, when you saw the outgoing Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell say the word provoke, that President Trump did provoke the insurrection. That could tip whether or not the Senate will actually go to convict him. And if they do, and then they go ahead and say he can't run again, that could begin to take some of that oxygen away. Are there serious heavyweight figures in the Republican Party who will try and bring the party back from the brink of tipping into a sort of a near-fascist outfit, which is not an exaggeration when you mention no. the things like QAnon and the various other conspiracy theories which seem to be fueling such a significant chunk of the Trump base? Well, that's another question about what we're going to see in the, in the upcoming 100 days. Will there be Republicans that will vote to confirm the cabinet very quickly. We already saw Josh Hawley's already making inroads against one of the, the members, the in, incoming, uh, the, the national security, the excuse me, the defense, the Homeland Security Director. He's already said that he's going to stand against that confirmation. They were trying to move it forward more quickly. So some of, I think, what we're going to see is the schism further divide the Republican Party. Those who remained in the objection mode after the Capitol was stormed, those who are trying to say that we're going to be in the Oh, the Biden administration of bringing re reconciliation and bring those parties back together and united. And when the history books are written, how much blame is he going to get for the extraordinary numbers have died from COVID-19? There always would have been deaths, but could that number have been significantly reduced by a better White House response? No doubt. And because he's on the record when he's talking to Bob Woodward saying that he tried to downplay it, he's on the record saying that he did this. There will be reckoning for that, if not in some sort of a legal court, certainly in the record books. We're talking about Trump, the man on the way out all the time. What about Joe Biden coming in? Because, you know, the Sleepy Joe conspiracy theories as well. They said that he's a stalking horse for this left-winger Kamala Harris. How difficult is it going to be for Biden and Harris, particularly as there's still a significant amount of people who have bought the Trump lie that they didn't win the election? Well, fair enough on a couple of points. One, in terms of looking at the Democratic Party and being aligned with that very strong progressive side, the, the AOCs, the, the, green, the Green Deal, the very liberally side, as he's tried to say, no, I'm more of a moderate as he gets elected. There's a little bit of a schism going on in the Democratic Party as well, Matt. And so that's going to have to be decided how they're going to play out. And then back to the point, though, about the Sleepy Joe Everybody who's ever actually worked with Joe Biden and one of my very best friends ran five of the, the states during the campaign. And Greg Colomit said to me, there is no chance that guy is super sharp. All of that is just the Trump rhetoric. But yet it's rhetoric that is simple and it's memorable and it sticks. So it will take some peeling away over these next 100 he days. from low expectations and that when Barack Obama, That's a strategy. In, Barack Obama came into power, they mean perhaps unreal expectations of the change he could deliver and he ran into a racist backlash. 
Could it be that following what's happened with Trump, all Biden has to be is rather moderate and good and he'll be a success? Well, it's going to be tough for him because certainly in terms of the positioning around his messaging, everybody's in agreement that he's got COVID, he's got the insurrection, he's got the impeachment follow-up. He's got a whole lot more trouble than he had when he came into the White House in 2009 with Obama. It's a whole different world. So that mountain combined with maybe low expectations, if he can just keep things afloat and try then, it'll be interesting to see if midterm elections, they'll be able to retain well, the America House and the Senate. America be peaceful tomorrow, not just Washington, that's, but all around the 50 states. Come on, that's why there's such incredible enforcement all around in the state capitals, as well as 25,000 National Guard members in D.C. That is my number one concern, is that no one gets hurt. Thank you very much. That's all we have time for tonight. Our thanks to Gina London. I'll be back on radio tomorrow, back here tomorrow night at 10 o'clock, The Tonight Show. Thank you very much for watching. Stay home and stay safe. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.